Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing The Da Vinci Code, the novel by American writer Dan Brown. The novel was published in 2003, and as you probably already know, it was made into a movie with the same title in 2006. But first, we are going to tell you all the ways you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a webpage at www.pagesandpopcornpodcast.com where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect to us via our Facebook page or our Twitter, both searchable by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. We are also on Goodreads, so no matter how you do the social media thing, you can connect with us. And, of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com, and we want to really encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform you use to listen to us on, especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. As always, we want to thank our patrons for their ongoing support. One dollar a month, or five if you're feeling especially generous, helps us keep doing this, and we love doing this. Boy, do we. And now, on with the show. Okay, so, book plot, The Da Vinci Code. We have an albino monk ruthlessly stalking a Louvre curator, Jacques Saunier, and shooting him in the stomach. Silas, the murderous Catholic monk, knowing Saunier is fatally shot, leaves like a good James Bond villain. Saunier, in a last act of plot device, leaves riddles for his estranged granddaughter, Sophie, and renowned Harvard symbologist Robert Langdon. Langdon is on town on a speaking tour and once roused by the police is on the case. 
There's a bit about Parisian sensibilities and Langdon has claustrophobia. At the crime scene, we've got a naked Saunier in the Vitruvian man pose, an out-of-sequence Fibonacci sequence, and a Satan, no, it's really goddess worship, Mark Saunier wrote on his own chest with his blood. Langdon is explaining goddess worship symbology to the police captain Bizofiash when police cryptologist and obvious love interest Sophie Niveau walks in and warns Landon that he is a murder suspect. Reviewing the clues, Niveau is haunted by losing a loving relationship with her grandfather over something she witnessed. As such, she wonders about P.S. Doesn't mean postscript, it means Princess Sophie and her grandfather's inclusion of Landon. They decipher the Fibonacci sequence and more elaborate clues left by the man who was shot in the stomach, but okay. Mona Lisa clue leads to Madonna on the rocks clue and a special key. The two escape in Nouveau's tiny car, which leads into a safe deposit box in the, the Paris branch of the Bank of Zurich. Langdon hypothesizes that Saunier was in a pagan group, the Priory of Sion, based on the symbols on the key. And the safe deposit box is a keystone, which turns out to be a cryptex originally designed by da Vinci. The scroll inside has a very important secret wrapped around a vial of vinegar. So if you try to force the box open or drop it, the secret will be destroyed. The box itself has more clues, so the two are on the hunt again. During this, there are interspersed perspective shifts with Silas. We learn he's been killing off Priorius Scion leaders on orders from an anonymous but beloved figure known as the Teacher. Instructed by Bishop Arangosa. Arangosa? Arangosa. I called him Bishay. You know? Bishay? <laughs> well, because it's like Bishop, so Bishay in my notes. Okay. <laughs> Silas is trying to discover the location of the keystone, crucial to getting the Holy Grail for Opus Dei, a controversial yet successful sect of the Catholic Church. That is, until the church's new liberal leadership gives Arangosa the boot. Back to the heroes. The bank manager, André Vernet, Again, with French titles. Vernet uh, helps Langdon and Nouveau escape and avoid scandal for the bank. And they go to Langdon's friend's house, Sir Le Tibing, who is extremely rich, an expert on the Holy Grail, and goddess worship. Tibing explains the Holy Grail is not the cup, but the tomb of Mary Magdalene. On a private plane to London, they solve another clue. The cryptex opens when they spell out Sophia. S-O-F-I-A. Inside is another cryptex and riddled leading to the tomb of Sir Isaac Newton. Nouveau finally tells Landon what caused the estrangement with her grandfather. She witnessed him in an eyes-wide-shut style orgy. Landon tells her it's all very good and sacred goddess worship called Heros Gamos, and it was not at all creepy catching your grandfather starring in a voyeuristic sex act. Cool. Wait, there's betrayal afoot. T-Bing is actually the teacher. T-Bing wants the Holy Grail in order to ruin the Vatican by revealing documents T-Bing believes to show Jesus Christ married Mary Magdalene and bore his children. At gunpoint, T-Bing forces Landon to solve the second cryptex password, which Langdon realizes is Apple. Langdon secretly opens the crypt, removes the contents before tossing the empty box in the air. T-Bing grasps for it, falls, and is devastated by the seeping vinegar. Fash arrests Tibing and Landon is vindicated. Bishop Arangrosa, realizing that Silas has been the one to murder innocent people, rushes to help the police find him. When the police find Silas hiding in an Opus Dei center, he assumes that they are there to kill him. He rushes out, and Bishop Arangrosa is accidentally shot. Um, he survives, but is informed that Silas is found dead of a gunshot wound. The final message inside the second keystone leads Niveau and Langdon to Rosalind Chapelle, 
Lou's dial scent turns out to be Naveau's long-lost brother, whom Naveau has been told died in a car accident when, which also killed her parents. The guardian of Rosalind Chapelle, Marie Cheville, Saint-Claire, is Naveau's long-lost grandmother. It is revealed that Naveau and her brother are descendants of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. Woohoo, she's actually a holy grail. The prior scion has kept her identity secret to protect her and possible threats to her life. The real meaning of the last message in the Grail is buried beneath the small pyramid below the La Perme in Versailles, which is in the Louvre. It's the iron pay glass dome thing that everyone kind of thinks is weird. Um, and at the last moment, Langdon figures out that this is the last resting place of Mary Magdalene, and he kneels before and prays. End of book. Okay, well, looks like you have stuff to say. <laughs> Go ahead, do the movie. All right. All right, movie plots. It's very similar. Uh, Louvre assassination is before, but this time we cut to a presentation of renowned symbologist Robert Landon. Isn't he so clever, tricking his audience with symbols that look familiar but have a richer history? The slides were obviously put together by some overworked grad student. The police interrupt his book signing and alert him to the murder. Cue the naked albino murdering monk Silas, who is secretly got a pain kink. Back to Landon and the Louvre. Landon can't help but comment on the triangliness of the Louvre triangle and the inverted triangle that I.M. Pei really, really likes. But we have to cut that short for Langdon's claustrophobia, which is never a major plot point, but there it is. And our second pale, naked, bloody guy. Enter Nouveau. She, warn, she warns Landon he's a suspect in a pretty cool way, and the two start their blues clues of adventures. Fibonacci sequence, Mona Lisa, Madonna on the Rocks, Key, mildly humorous scene where Nouveau holds a painting hostage and escape in Nouveau's car. After some insane driving by Nouveau and her tiny car, we go back to Silas and get some backstory about an abusive father and scenes of desolation. He works for the teacher, Bishop Angarosa, and Opus Dei. At the cathedral, he's following his own set of clues to find the Holy Grail and being creepy to an old nun. There's a scene, there's some scene bouncing, but in essence, Silas breaks a section of tile floor in the cathedral. He confronts the nun, who turns out to be one of the bigwigs in the Priory of Sion, and kills her. Back to our heroes. Niveau and Langdon walk through the park of sins and try to figure out Saunier's key clue. There's some history about the Knights Templar. There were holy knights who were killed by the Pope for an artifact they kept hidden. What artifact? The Holy Grail. Church politics are still an issue today. Bishop Arangrosa, head of Opus Dei, meets with the heads of the church. When they try to dismiss him, then he drops a bomb about the Priory of Sion. There are other intermittent scenes cut through with the police after Langdon and Vo back to Bishop Arangrosa, then to Silas, and so on. So I'm cutting short a lot of these scene jumps. Langdon and Sophie get the cryptex and are aided by André Vernal, the bank manager. He turns out to be a dick and tries to shoot them. The two escape in the armored vehicle and drive to Langdon's friend's house, Sir T-Bing. He is an expert on the Holy Grail, blah blah blah. T-Bing is super wealthy, brilliant with a penchant for medieval flourishes and propriety. We get some backstory on Constantine and Goddess worship. Pagans and Christians were at war, so Constantine endorses Christianity and starts the Council of Mycia. Landon and Timbing argue about the history of Jesus' divinity. They talk about male and female symbology in the Da Vinci's Last Supper. This is when Timbing drops a bomb about Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Philip. After the crucifixion, Magdalene fled and had a daughter, Sarah. Opus Dei has been after the descendants to preserve the credibility of the Vatican. Silas breaks in, but T-Bing, using one of his crutches, disables him. The group escapes to London via T-Bing's private plane, along with his butler, Remy. 
They travel to the temple church, but the clue to unlocking the cryptex is a red herring. Silas is freed by Remy, who is chased by the teacher and taking T being hostage, dumping him in the car trunk, and taking Silas to hide out in the Opus Dei safe house. T being, who is revealed to be the teacher, later poisons Remy and sends the police after Silas. Silas is shot by the police after accidentally wounding Aaron Rosa, who is arrested by Fiash. Langdon and Sophia are confronted by Teabing, who wants to bring down the church for centuries of persecution and deceit. The trio go to Westminster Abbey, to the tomb of Isaac Newton, former Grand Master of the Priory. Teabing demands that the pair open the cryptex. Langdon tries and then tosses the cryptex into the air. Teabing dies for it, catches it, but vinegar dribbles and the papyrus is destroyed. The police arrive and arrest Teabing, who realizes Langdon must have solved the cryptex's code and removed the papyrus. The code is revealed to be Apple, um, because that's all very Newtonian. And nice little thing about uh, church history. The clue inside the cryptex, which tells the Grail is hiding underneath the rose, leads Landa and Sophie to Rosalind Chapelle in Scotland. And inside the chapel, they discover Magdalene's tomb has been removed. Langdon, after searching through documents, realized that Sophie's family died in a car crash, that Seigneur was not her grandfather, but her protector, and that she is the last descendant of Jesus Christ. The two are greeted by several members of the Priory, including Sophie's grandmother, who promises to protect her. Landon and Sophie part ways, the former returning to Paris while shaving. He cuts himself, has an epiphany about the blood, and then he goes to realize that in the Louvre, there's the sarcophagus of Mary Magdalene hidden below the pyramid, and he kneels. End of movie. This is highly abbreviated because there's a lot of stuff in this. Yeah, and... I, I mean, at this point, most people know the bare bounds of the story. There's a mm. bunch of art. It's like national treasure, but in Paris with art. Yeah. Um, if you're going to combine national treasure with Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, you'd have this. So it's not as intellectual as Umberto. It's a little bit better than national treasure, but not by a whole lot. Or at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Now, I find this to be an interesting one because we're both sort of outsiders when it comes to this. Well, let's let's start with how yeah. you came to it. Because I think my story at least informs a lot of my opinions. So, okay. I'll go first. Um, when this came out in 2003, I was uh, a new pagan. I was a new pagan. Newly minted pagan. I was studying paganism. I was studying a Dianic tradition, which is a female spirituality, and I was studying to become a priestess of, of a pagan group. So I had a, a very interest, a very strong interest in this book. And um, there's this idea of like, you know, uh, confirmation bias is a very real thing where you, you see things and you're like, well, of course, because that agrees with what I already think. So when I read this book, I was like, well, of course, this agrees with what I already think. The church is evil and bad. Damn the patriarchy. And goddess worship is the thing. And okay. Then a couple years went by and I was no longer studying quite the same way. And I saw the movie and I was like, damn, Tom Hanks's hair is awful. And this is not good. Did I misremember the book? And then I went back and kind of skimmed parts of the book and were like, oh, wait, now I've done some actual history reading. This book is not historically accurate. This, And we'll talk more about historical fiction versus not, I think, in a couple minutes. But so it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. 
I went ahead and read the other Dan Brown books. Uh, there are two others in this series, particular Robert Langdon, and then another couple ones too. And um, and we'll talk more about the the bad writing of Dan Brown, I'm sure, at some point in a couple minutes. And then then kind of just put it on a shelf and ignored it and yada, yada, yada. It's one of those ones when people talk about the Da Vinci Code, you kind of roll your eyes because there's some elements of truth and there's a lot of elements of not truth. And it's kind of weird and confusing and it's definitely a money grab and fine. Okay, so then we read it again now and um, watch the movie now. And yeah, now I have different opinions. (laughs) So there we go. Your backstory is way more interesting than mine. Always is. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was like the big thing in 2003. I heard about it. I went to my oldest nephew's baptism, and I actually ended up liking the priest quite a bit uh, for his, his lecture of the day. At the end, he got all kind of animated with his congregation. They were talking about the Da Vinci Code. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Did they have like a book club thing going on? Well, cool. So it was something that was just, you know, really prevalent. And then I had a student who bought this super cool, extra glossy picture version and gave them to me. And I went, oh, this is what everyone's talking about? Oh, well, that's interesting um i saw like pieces of the movie but it it was something i had on the background it was never anything of major interest for me yeah yeah so not as interesting as studying paganism and trying to be a priest priestess (laughs) priestess yes yes all right yeah it it was it was definitely disappointing just there's so much hype and then when you actually read it it's like oh well okay i i almost feel like you have to separate Okay, I have so many thoughts. The first thought, though, really is we have to talk about the difference between fiction and historical fiction and creative nonfiction in terms of literature. Okay, because so if I'm going to write a historical fiction and I'm going to set it in, in, let's say, the Revolutionary War and I'm going to say, okay, I'm writing a story and it's Martha Washington, you know, and so she she's married to George and he's leading the, you know, there's the Potomac and, you know, okay, American revolutionaries win and, and it's my story of that real people, real occurrences, but from the point of view of somebody who lived, maybe it's not even Martha, maybe it's like Martha's best friend or something. And it doesn't really matter because those historical people, George Washington is a real person, the Potomac really happened, yada, yada. But if while telling George Washington's story through somebody else's eyes, um, George Washington dies at Yorktown, like suddenly I'm not writing historical fiction anymore. I'm writing speculative fiction, right? If the British win, that's speculative fiction. If George Washington um, secretly was a woman and, you know, worshipped cows, we're in speculative fiction now. We're not in historical fiction. And so I feel like by presenting this as trying to pretend like this is true, and at the first page is like, here are some true facts, which aren't actually true. Like, we have an unreliable narrator who's building us into this world that looks like our world, but we're not given enough information to know that this is a pretend world. It's acting like it's the real world. It's using some real things, like there really was a Constantine. There really was, you know, the the Nicene group. But, But they didn't do what they say they did in this book. And we have historical evidence to that. So that... That really bothers me because it feels unfair to the audience. Well, I think Dan Brown shot himself in the foot a number of times 
For example, in 2003, while promoting the novel, Brown was asked in interviews what part of the history in his novel actually happened. He replied, absolutely all of it. Yeah, he was lying. In 2003 interview with CNN, he was again asked how much was historically... 99 is true. The background is all true. It's... It's not, though. And that's the thing. And so when you get into... And a lot of this book is people explaining things to other people. And it's this weird mishmash of real stuff and not real stuff. But because it, we are the audience aren't given enough information to be able to determine who's our flawed narrators and who's actually telling us the truth... We don't we don't have that luxury of knowing, and so you you're kind of asked to take it all hook, line, and sinker. There's there's really no skeptical thoughts happening. Well, it's interesting about skeptical thoughts. Uh, prior Scion was a hoax started in the 1950s. Oh, Jennifer, don't you know that's what they want you to think? Oh, of course. Yeah. Ah. Um. So is this Dan Brown not being skeptical, or is this him going? Oh, well, this is kind of cool. Let me work it into a story. Well, I mean, and those two have very different. Personally, I think he wanted to write a story. He made it fit his thing. Knew it would be controversial and interesting if he threw in some stuff. It's that I can't think of that word where you see what you want to see. I'm gonna look it Confirmation up. Confirmation bias? No, but there's another one. It's it's like visually where you see what you want to see. Hmm. It starts with a P. I can't think of it. Um. Anyways, but like using those things and confirmation bias and. I mean, let's not forget that the church, they didn't really talk about this. They're like, oh, the church has helped people. And a little bit in, in both, they're like, well, the church has also done bad things. But they didn't really get into, like, the church has done some really bad things, specifically the Catholic church, specifically abusing children. So, like, I mean, we you can make an argument that the Catholic church has done bad things, but I don't even know if this book is doing that. And, and I guess we should maybe save that for a little bit, too, but... Man, it's just a mess. It's just a muddled mess. And then you add into it that it's so badly written. Oh, my God. I also have some fantastic quotes about that. Oh, I bet we have the same ones. Um, all right. Let's see if we do. Do you have the Salmon Rushdie quote? Yes. Okay. Salmon Rushdie. Do not start me on the Da Vinci Code, a novel so bad that it gives bad novels a bad name. <laughs> Stephen Fry... Yep. Refer to the writings. Complete loose stool water. Arse gravy of the worst kind. Yes. Stephen King called it jokes for the john, calling such literature the intellectual equivalent of Kraft macaroni and cheese. I like that one a lot. Uh, let's see. Umberto Echo also makes the list. How about the New York Times? While reviewing the movie based on the book, called the book Dan Brown's best-selling primer on how not to write an English sentence. <laughs> I like Echo just because, you know, if we're talking about historical accuracy, he goes into this little thing, the Knights of the Royal Temple, the Hermetic Secret, the principle that everything is connected. I suspect Dan Brown might not even exist. There you go. Linguist Jeffrey Pullum and others posted several entrees critical of Dan Brown's writing on Language Log, calling Brown one of the, quote, worst prose stylists in the history of literature and saying Brown's writing is not just bad, it is staggeringly, clumsily, thoughtlessly, almost ingeniously bad. But, I mean, he sold millions of copies and then wrote lots and lots of books and has made lots and lots of money and lots of them were made into movies and there's even more money and so, sure. But, my God, the prose was frustrating. This is one of those things I point to along with another particular author I won't get into of, you know, just because it's popular doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. So when I see writers who are struggling and their work is actually rather exceptional, don't worry. 
<laughs> it, it can be really good and still not be popular just because yeah. stuff. I will also say that I think if the story here wasn't controversial, if it wasn't like, oh, God, it's going to blow the lid off the Catholic Church and oh, da, 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 da. like if it wasn't that, then I don't think this would be nearly as popular or as well read because it is so badly written. Yeah, there's sometimes catching lightning, you know, you get the right story at the right time. And it's not that the story is any good. It's just that it was needed at that particular time. Right, well, I think the, the story is audience. interesting. It, you know, the, the revisionist history of like, wouldn't it be interesting if there had actually, if Jesus had actually had a child, like, wouldn't that throw a lot of stuff into turmoil? Why? Yes, yes, it would. That doesn't make it Real, but it is an interesting thought experiment, which is why this should be in speculative fiction. Because, you know, I—I I mean, I love speculative fiction. I would actually really like to read a, a the next book, not written by Dan Brown, about them showing the world the truth, and then like you know, like in this fictionalized universe, and and the whole Catholic Church like having to, like being taken over by women, and now like you know the um, Reverend Mother is now in charge, and it it all becomes goddess worship stuff, and like that. I mean, obviously that is would would work for me. So like <laughs> it would be interesting. I like books like that. Like the Power just came out last you know last year or the year before about that that flipping of things, and and as a thought experiment, it, yeah. it's fun as a historical novel or as a novel that's pretending pretending to be true it just doesn't work and the writing is just really really bad and to give you some examples those of you who have not read this book about how bad the writing is i will say that the number of flashbacks um i lost count at 15 and i was i think on the on chapter 18 when i lost count because almost every chapter has a flashback it is Redonkulous. Also, the number of times that the the text says, "So and so quickly explained," blah da 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 da, and there's two paragraphs. So and so quickly explained, blah da 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 da. Like because it's so much of historical people or people talking about history stuff, they're just like, "Well, let me tell you this whole long story about this history. Let me tell you about that." Now, in the movie, they did a better job because they actually had some visuals. some visuals to go along with it, so it wasn't just people lecturing historical stuff. I mean, I like history, but my God. Like, it just, it doesn't work. So, well, that's one of the things to understand about writing. Uh, and this is true in movies, too. Exposition is a killer. Mm -hmm. You never want to get into exposition. It's really hard to make it interesting. If you can find somebody who does, that's exceptional. Yeah, this book is incredibly long. It takes place over the course of one night and, like, into the next day. And it, it is multiple historical books and ideas used as exposition just over and over and over again. We're going to have another conversation with somebody else. And it's not enough to look at a painting, but we have to give you the history of this painting and when it was painted and who painted it and why and what everything means in it. And then and, and, and it's not even valid or relevant in it. Or real. There's a lot of stuff in here that never comes up. That's why I mentioned Langdon's claustrophobia. Okay. Yeah. That's never a They never point. bring it up again. And I, I think the reason is, okay, first of all, it, it gets brought up in the movie. We can talk about that in a second. In the book, it doesn't resurface. It definitely feels like he was going to get trapped at some point and they would have to work through it. But he doesn't in the book. But he does in the series. That that part of, of his thing, because this is the second in a series of books, if you read the whole series, it comes more into it. Mm. But because this movie was made as a standalone, because I didn't know if it was going to do well, they they kept it, and then they explained it, and then she cures him by touching his face, 
And well, she is, you know, Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, and when he gets into the armored car, he has... In the book, he gets in the armored car with not a problem. <laughs> the elevator was a problem. The armored car, not a yeah, problem. Yeah, and that's something like... that you could bring in that would bring some texture. <laughs> yeah. And but no. It feels like, okay, well, I have a Marty Stew or, you know, the male Mary Sue, however you want to say it. And, okay, well, we need a fatal flaw. He has claustrophobia. Well, he only has it in Chapter 2. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the problem where you have inconsistent character writing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also in the movie, they... They gave him the ability to remember everything that he sees, and we had the visuals of him trying to figure out anagrams and stuff in the book. He just kind of does it without a lot of explanation. Um, in the book, Sophie actually does more figuring out than the movie. She's very passive in the movie. She's just kind of there for the ride. She comes across pretty bamfy when she's first introduced and she's like okay do this thing on the phone mr langdon yes and so that's and then and cool. then throwing off the gps tracker and stuff but after that it's like they leave the louvre and she's suddenly like oh she does some fast driving that's very which is not in the book but definitely in the movie you know more so and then she just kind of loses it like she's just she's just kind of there and like she's us as the audience getting everything explained to and she's a little bit skeptical and and whatnot and then they, they kind of take turns pretending to be so skeptics it's, this is to me the moment uh, where the novel finally like this is the last straw was towards the end when we have all this stuff about you know the power of women and goddess worship all this stuff and then the very end, you have the two guys deciding everything and shoving her off on the side. Yeah. I'm like, did you, did you not well, get the message of your own book, Mr. Also, Brown? Also, in the movie, it's all, yes, this, this Pyreus Scion, it's all, you know, the equal parts, men and women, yin and yang, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then they go to the, the Rosalind Chapel and, and then like... All of a sudden, these men show up, and then it's like one woman, her grandmother, and like well, there's a couple other, but it's mostly men, and they're like, "Here we are," and you're like, "Wait a minute, where's all the women? Like, shouldn't it have been?" I mean, also, where the frick were you guys when she was in danger? And like, you would think if she was being watched or guarded, that as soon as her grandfather died, like she would have also been chased. It would have made way more sense to me if somebody, some other group or people had been chasing them and we didn't know who they were and it turned out at the end it was the pirate sign trying to catch up and keep them safe. Not that we need another point of view. Well, we didn't really need Silas, is what I'm saying. Like, I would have rather that, because that could have been the tension of, like, who are these people and what do they really want? We knew who Silas was. We knew what he wanted. And, and he was just such a side quest. Like, he does his thing, then he dies, like... I mean, he intersects with them a little, but then he goes away. It's just, it's, and and if you've read other Dan Brown books, this is this is Dan Brown tropes. You have the assassin person off to the side who kind of comes in, but isn't really a major. Like that's not the main point of tension, even though it starts off like they're gonna be the big bad. You have the the teacher person, like the you know, the mentor person who turns out to be the bad guy. Like, if you've read any other Dan Brown book, you it's very boilerplate, as Roger Ebert said. You know, it is it is extremely boilerplate. This this whole, the whole thing. There's no surprises. Especially when things would end, like the chapter would end, and it would say stuff like, little did he know, in an hour he'd get his miracle. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, oh my god. So when people talk about tight plots, they're not talking about this. Yeah. You know, a tight plot, you would have the assassin not just kind of die off on the side. You know, there, there's some culminating aspect of it. And when you introduce something like claustrophobia, 
that's got to come back. You got to address it at some point. <laughs> it's that's Chekhov's claustrophobia, <laughs> but it dissipated. <laughs> or maybe it's in another well, book. Well, it was cured by Baby Jesus Girl. Baby Jesus Girl. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we talked about historical fiction, um, conspiracy theories. Obviously, there's something very appealing about conspiracy theories. People like to think that they're the people in the know. You know, and it's not just even conspiracy. It's like secrets. You know, that's why we gossip. That's why when we know something about somebody, you know, we're like, oh, did you know? Oh, you didn't know? Here, let me tell you. You know, or I know something you don't know. It's a very popular game for children. I know something you don't know. So fine. We all like to feel special. We like to feel like we've figured something out. The issue with conspiracy theories, there have been conspiracies. Mm -hmm. This has existed. However, people make way more of it than there should. Um, Anthony Scalia, he wasn't murdered. He was just an old guy who died. Get over that one. You know, uh, when it comes to church conspiracies, there are conspiracies that happened, but we usually do know about them because people are really bad at keeping secrets. So these come out in history. Uh, there are very few conspiracies that actually bear out to be anything useful. Well, of course, if they were being good, then we wouldn't know about them. So, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that in and of itself perpetuates. Like, I know somebody who is an amazing liar. Amazing. And the way I know that this person is an amazing liar is because this person has told me about all the lies that they've told. And either A, they're lying to me so believably, or B, everybody thinks that this person is the most honest person they've ever met. If, if you know, if we were mutual someone's friends... Someone's telling the truth. Someone someone's always, always lies. Tra- right. But I'm just saying, like, this person has this reputation of being super honest amazingly honest like beyond reproach so either that's true and they just lied to me when they were like here's the list of all the lies i've ever told because isn't this amazing how awesome i am at lying or or that the, the inverse is true and they've been lying you know what i mean like mm. either way it's freaking amazing and it just blows my mind to try to figure it out so i'm just saying <laughs> Okay, I'm curious about this person. Now. You don't know this person. So, but like the conspiracy theories, like they work and they, they pike our in, pique our interest and stuff because if they really were working, we really wouldn't know. And that's what makes it so intriguing. And, you know, okay, whatever. The best liar is someone you'd never suspect. The best conspiracy theory, you actually wouldn't know anything about it. So, well, there are certain things that you see that don't add up or are issues. So, the issue with the Knights Templar, that's a pretty good one to have. You know, that's, that's, Interesting historical fodder of how was it that they were wiped out. So that's the stuff that's kind of fun to look at and know. Um, But there's a lot of stuff where we are really good at recognizing patterns. And this is a survival mechanism because it's important to understand, well, if that's bit of grass over there is moving. Is that the lion that's about to eat you or is that the wind? Mm -hmm. You know, is this the berry that's going to poison you or is this the one that's going to Make sure that you get through the winter. Right. So we're great at pattern recognition and that we're so overly good at it. We'll look at patterns that really aren't there. Yes. We'll see things that aren't there. It's just like one of the things that got me is there's a guy who was shot in the stomach and he's going through. He has 15 minutes to die. Oh, so by the way, uh, one stomach shots are incredibly painful. You're not going to be running around with black light ink to you know, go to well, he happened and... to still have that marker in his hand. He and took it with him from the office, apparently. Yeah, that's convenient. 
Um, and you're also not going to be running around. They're super painful. But they also, it takes a while to die from a stomach wound. Mm-hmm. That's part yeah. of the unfortunate thing of it. 15 minutes. So he knew that he had 15 You can look minutes. for a couple days. It was going to take every last bit of energy he had. <laughs> he had a lot of work to do in the next 15 minutes. His handwriting was actually pretty impressive, considering that he's dying and bleeding out. And it seemed to be not as much blood as you would think, like smeared all over yeah, and there's all just the like random places. Because little... then he went over there, and then he went over there, and then he wrote over here. And... But yeah, if you had a blacklight, you should be able to see the trail that's going around. It should right. be like, you no. know, no. Ghost Bunny almost. That would, that would take away from the... The pow moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This movie was also very dark. Like, not dark in, like, tone, really, or dark in, um... It was just dark lighting. The dark lighting. My gosh, I was watching it on my very large screen with, you know, but it was hard to see. Yeah. I mean, I think that probably adds part of the mystery of it, but what do I have here? Uh, Some changes. I mean, they made lots of changes. The, the plot points were the same, but they, they did make some interesting changes. Um, in the book, it was the Vatican who was funding this whole thing. Um, and they didn't really know about Opus Dei and the teacher and the blah, blah, blah. They just, they, they knew about Opus Dei, but they didn't know what he was up to. And in the book, or sorry, in the movie, it was the secret council who represented the Vatican, who were kind of like, so it makes that church more complicit. I feel like... In both the book and the movie, Dan Brown and Ron Howard, they're trying to, like, straddle this line between saying the church is evil and saying the church is not evil. There are evil mm-hmm. people. And so my question for you is, ultimately, what do you think the message regarding the church and the truth and whether or not the truth should come out, etc.? If we accept it all as true, let's just pretend, start with that point. I feel like the book and the movie are making different pleas, different kind of proclamations about what should or shouldn't happen or the good or the evil of the church. Do do you get that at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. I had that same question that I was going to ask you, so there we go. Ha! Um, So at the end, like, okay, is the Vatican Church something for evil? Is it something for good? How we treat this in Opus Dei? And we have our obviously evil character who wants to bring down the Vatican, which has been complicit in a lot of problems. And you're talking about teabing right yeah, as yeah. being our bad guy yeah yeah he's supposedly a bad guy but um he's got not a terrible reason to do what he's doing he just his methodology so in the book they're getting rid of opus day because the new pope is more liberal and we have this issue with tradition which i was like oh, okay that's it's 2003. Yeah, you know, we can move on. But obviously, religion is a lot about tradition. And people who... Okay, I want to be a little bit careful about this. Um, so there's some interesting experiments done with brains and what parts are more triggered in certain people. And people with higher fear centers tend to cling on to tradition a lot more. And so that's one of the reasons why religions tend to be very fixed. You want to have that tradition. You want to have some stability, especially when the world is turning to chaos. It is literally why God's law in the Bible is, quote, written on stone. The Ten Commandments aren't allowed to change. Whereas if you have different religions, <coughs> paganism, you're allowed to have a religion that evolves and changes. Unitarian Universalism. Do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it's based on 
we're going to take these sources and we're going to do these things. But we understand it's a living tradition. Our religion evolves through time because we get new information and our needs are different than our ancestors' needs. You know, mm-hmm. um, we we're, our morality tales need to reflect our time because if our morality tales never evolve and change, they won't make any sense anymore. Yeah. So there's also this this thing about, you know, is the Vatican really... <sighs> Is it the end-all and be-all of Christianity? So if you're Catholic, obviously that kind of is. Um, but if you're looking at the grand tradition, the Vatican was, you know, much later. Uh, the the Council of Mycenae, that, that has a lot to do with what we think of traditions as today, what we think of as sort of the, the facts of today. But these were all decisions that were made very early on that really don't have anything to do with well, I'm not going to say they don't have anything to do, but... But they were is, informed is, by political decisions. Yeah. Yes. And so not taking that into account, and when you're trying to figure out, okay, what's reality and what isn't, there's a whole bunch of history that's getting in the way of that. Um, so I like Teabing and Landon's little fight. Well, was Jesus considered, you know, just a prophet who was a normal man? Was he divine? Was he this? Was he that? What are the thoughts that went through at certain political times that have fossilized into day-to-day that people think are part of the Bible that really aren't? Mm-hmm. Or they think that is part of the religious tradition that was later decided by, you know, people with political agendas. Right. So it feels like the movie was saying, is was Christ divine or not divine? It doesn't matter. Langdon basically says it doesn't matter. What matters is what you believe, you know. Which is all well and good until it's not anymore because it does kind of matter, don't you think? Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, if you're going to build something on a quote-unquote truth, then that quote-unquote truth ought to be true. Well, and this is one of those things that we were talking about with the church. It's got a pretty bloody history and not just Catholicism. A lot of churches do this um, because... People will use ideas as backing for what they really want to do. Uh, so when, when you're looking at uh, witch burnings, is it really about following religion or are there some other plays and religion's just kind of a convenient crutch for that? Yeah. But if you were to say, oh, well, this is a religious tradition. We have to do this. Let's do a crusade because we need the Holy Land. And we need to go kill a lot of people. Well, don't you want to have something right. a little bit more concrete? Well, even like, you know, God has given us this land. This is our land. God chose us to live here. You happen to live here. Well, sorry. You might have been here for generations, but too bad. My God has told me that this is where I'm supposed to be. I mean, it does get very murky and uncomfortable. And I, you know, obviously we're both skeptics. <laughs> we're literally part board members of the Central Valley Atheists and Skeptics Alliance, or Alliance of Atheists and Skeptics. And, um... So we're going to come at this with a different opinion than mm-hmm. probably other people. I think that faith is a tool. It can be used for good or bad. I, I think faith isn't in and of itself, you know, a perfect thing. It's not. A lot of people are like, you have to have faith. Faith is the be all and end all. And I would disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I feel like things should be questioned. And So if you were to have a personification about the dangers or harms of religion, Silas actually does a fairly good job of that. Of Here's a fanatic. He absolutely believes this one thing. Um, but, okay, he is, like, I mean, he's definitely a tragic character. So he was, 
he was victimized as a child. He was traumatized and he was in prison for, you know, basically like stealing food and stuff. Like, I mean, it was bad, bad news bears, right? All around for Silas. Then he gets rescued by the church. And I don't want to be like pointing parallels here, but there's a lot of parallels. So this person who's had a rough life gets rescued by the church. Suddenly he's celebrated by what he can do. He's given a home. He's given a purpose. He's given family and love and like all of those things. Of course, then he becomes a devoted disciple of this thing, even though the thing itself is, you know, this this self-flagellation is is barbaric and, and horrific. But, you know, he, he does that and he needs that or wants that and feels like he deserves. I mean, it's just, look. And then, of course, he's the perfect tool and he's used as a tool Um the bishop in the book, I feel like he seemed to care for Silas a little bit. The bishop in the movie would definitely seem like he was just using him. Yeah. Um, And so like that, I think that there might be a statement there about how religion preys upon people who are weak or traumatized or seeking, gives them something and then sets them up into this, like us versus them. Here's the safety place. The, the Opus Dei, you know, your safe place and out in the world is crazy and evil and bad and they don't understand you. So we're the only people who love and support you. So you have to do what we say because out there is dangerous. Even though you're perpetuating that danger. Exactly. Or or, or causing. I mean, so, yes. Ugh. One of the things about Silas that bothers me is he's an albino. And albinos are often the bad characters. In a lot of films, you know, it's like if you look at seventies films, um, the crazy psychopath was, you know, trans or gay or s- some sort of like sexual perversion. Here we have an albino. Oh, obviously he's evil, and that trope comes out a lot, which it's is the othering. Yeah, which is very unfair. The the only part that almost saves that, and they did it in the movie, and I I, I think they did it in the book too. Actually, when he was a kid, he was called a ghost, and he saw his whiteness, his pure whiteness as a bad thing because people told him it was bad. And then when he saved the bishop, the bishop said, you're an angel. And suddenly his pure whiteness was a good thing. And literally all it took was somebody relabeling it. Mm. His actions were the same. He had just done violence. But because that he had done it in the service of protecting somebody, but then that the, the real key here is that the guy relabeled him. He reclassified him. And so if you are told that you are bad, and then suddenly you are told you are good, that is, the, I mean, that's straight up brainwashing, but it's also, it's, it's understandable why that would be so powerful. Which is one of the reasons why I bring note of this. How we label people in films has powerful effects. We need to be a lot more cognizant of what we're doing. Um, the other thing about Silas was, you know, the pain kink, and he's self-flagellating. There is a fairly long tradition, and this is not exclusive to Christianity, but of... Gaining higher awareness through pain. And it made me think of people who love to get tattoos and the endorphin rush and that we're setting up a dichotomy between what's loving and gentle and then we have this very masculine pain-oriented cult and how unfair that is in a lot of ways. And no, I'm not saying go out and flagellate yourself and that's how you achieve higher awareness. Unless you want to. Unless you want to. Exactly that. You know, if you're somebody who really likes tattoos and you like the endorphin rush, if you're somebody who wants to understand suffering, that's not a terrible thing. And we're definitely not kink shaming the BDSM community at all. This is, this has to do more with power though, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And, 
and and the understanding. Like Silas was a was a. I don't feel like Silas really was given the tools to make a decision about consent. He was told like he was told that his pain would bring him to God. He certainly wasn't enjoying it. It was it was the means to an end to get to God. Does that make sense? That's, oh, yeah, I absolutely. feel like that's different than being like, hey, I like to get spanked. It feels good. You know, like I feel like that's a different thing, right? No, but um cross culture you will find a lot of this of you know, starving for a certain amount of days, you know, that kind of fasting because you do change it does change your level of awareness. You know, having pain does do things that changes the way your brain works for a period of time. Um, you know, there is the endorphin rush. And so that's why I don't like that set up dichotomy mm. of, well, this is obviously bad. And then this is obviously good. Right. Well, and they do set it up more so in the book than in the movie where they talk a lot about how sex was supposed to be the be all and end all of how you found God. Like that's the only way men can really find God is that split second of blinking out of existence right after orgasm. Apparently, women find it through childbirth, so um, bullshit on that. But uh, you know, what you didn't experience God when you gave birth. I experienced my own inner goddess. <laughs> Thank you very much. But not every woman gives birth, so I mean, I just whatever. Like it's it's a, that's a flawed dichotomy too. But they did spend a lot of time talking about sex is good, which is which is true. But pain is bad, which isn't necessarily true, right? So and they're I, not. Completely mutually exclusive. <laughs> yes, exactly. I also like speaking about sex. Okay, the book has this like all of these little moments where Sophie's like, "Oh, something happened. I don't want to talk about it. Oh, I found something out, but I don't want to talk about it. Oh, I'm going to think a little bit more about the thing I found out, but I'm not going to actually say what it was. Oh, and then I walked down, and I saw something. I yes, it is. I saw something. Oh, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. And I'm like, as it's going on, the first time I was reading this book, I'm like, what the hell did she see? Yeah. This is horrible like are they mutilating children are they burning puppies like what is it and it turns out they are freaking having sex mm. i mean wearing masks but having sex yeah it doesn't okay like, like am i jaded or like have i just been to some much better parties than sophie because <laughs> holy crap man two people having sex it's like sure I, I, and they didn't really get into it as much in the movie. They had a couple of visuals and stuff. But, and in the book, it's very clear. It's her grandmother. Like, he was having sex with his own wife. Like, I mean, ultimately, it was like, but 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 it almost felt like, like old people shaming. My grandfather, how dare he have sex with an old lady? And she goes out of her way to say that the old, like, the woman was older and, and like, saggy and, like, not, you know, I'm like, what the? What the hell, man? <laughs> like, talk about shaming. Jesus, Sophie, what a prude. And then, of course, in the in the book, there's this romance between Sophie and Langdon, which, thank God, they left out in the movie. Thank goodness. Yeah, it's just such a trope. <clears throat> oh, attractive girl. Uh, love interest. So that's... And I really didn't like the way Dan Brown did that at the very end of the novel. Oh, well. Where he's like, well, we can't go to museums. What are we going to do? Oh, well, let me show you with a kiss. Well, not only that, but like earlier on, like she reached back and touched his leg and then looked forward and had a small grin on her face. And, and Robert Langdon also realized he was grinning. And I'm like, you adrenaline junkie weirdos, like <laughs> traveling through the middle of the night with like, you're bleeding. But okay, sure. I mean, I suppose 
I suppose adrenaline makes you do all sorts of things. Also, can we just talk about the fact that they are up all night, nobody ever pees, nobody <laughs> eats, nobody falls asleep. Like, I don't care how excited you are about, like, the well, grail. Well, they do have tea with lemon. Oh, well, there you go. And some biscuits, apparently, at one point. Some stale crackers. Which was really funny. He's like, these old crackers that I found in the plane. And I was like, teeping would not have stale crackers. Well, his, his little assistant makes some a dinner, and they're like, oh, no, we're not hungry. But it's like, no, it's really good. You should eat it. Yeah, whatever. Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's another underlying thing we didn't look at, that Remy dies from drinking the poison cognac. Well, it was it had peanuts in it. He realized it was salty. And the reason we know that is because one of our little breadcrumbs early on, when the police are doing the background check for Remy, they're like, oh, he was a petty thief. He blah, blah, blah. He lives here. Oh, he's got an allergy to peanuts. Like, it's just one of, like, 27 different little factoids we get about Remy. And then later he's drinking. He's like, oh, it tastes salty. And then he dies. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because he obviously, like, put crushed up peanuts or something in like his you would drink. But is- you didn't notice. It just tasted salty. And then you then you go into anaphylactic shock and you die. Okay. And in the movie. And I liked Remy. I thought he was a cool character. Remy was fine. Yeah. In, in the book, it they really played with not letting you know who this teacher was. And they like we even got like little snippets of Teabing's inner monologue that would undermine whether or not he was the teacher. Because like, what is he doing? You know, I don't know. He's full of fear. Blah, blah, blah. Like all these things. Right. Okay, fine. And then. Like, when it happens, because it can always be like, the teacher said this, the teacher does this, and like, because it's a book, we don't, we don't see the teacher, we just know the teacher. But in the movie, obviously, like, they couldn't do that. So they have this weird point of view camera where Revy's talking to the teacher, and the teacher's not saying anything, even though it's obviously a conversation, because that would give it away and tell the point where they want to let us know, like, dun-dun-dun, twist. But it was dumb. Yeah, badly so. done. <laughs> it makes me want to watch a Hitchcock film just to kind of clear the palate. I just blah, whatever. Yeah, well, okay, and, and also so. in the, in the book they did lay in something like Teabing opens the doors. They're at the chateau. He opens the doors at one point, and then he closes the doors, but he leaves them unlocked, and that's how Silas gets in. Like so, there's little things where like he's definitely playing the things, and he and it, once you know it, and you because I remembered it, you know, so I was looking for the clues along the way this time. You know, it's kind of there. But it's also kind of not. And I don't know about you, whether or not when a twist happens, you like to be able to go back and find the clues, like if you'd been paying attention. Like, do you want to see the, I mean, it's basically, this whole book is about clues under your, your nose that you're maybe not realizing. It's, you'd almost expect there to be clues under your nose that once you know the answer, they seem really obvious. But he didn't actually write it that well. So once you know the answer, you go back and look at the clues, and there's a few there, but they're not really there. And and because he's purposely trying to trick you with by like, giving you Teabing's internal monologue, I was like, mm, you're failing at this again. I don't even know mm. if, what you're trying to do, but yeah. I I want to give him a box set of of you know murders she wrote just to this is how you write stuff where you have clues and the audience has the ability to figure it out. Mm-hmm. But it's still tricky, and so it is a game that you're playing with the with the writers of can you figure this out can you not without it being a cheat yeah so going back to stylistics um i did not go through a lot of flashbacks just because it would have made the summary feel very schizophrenic yeah there's a lot of flashbacks i feel i was really tempted because we don't 
we don't talk beforehand about this, but I know you're going to do the thing. And I was tempted to ask you if you were going to go like point by point. Cause if you were, I was going to have a bell and I was going to like <laughs> ding it every time there was a flashback, but I thought, no, cause she might not do it. I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't. Yeah. I, I just one, wanted so. to keep it simple. And okay. So this is what's going on in all these flashbacks in a summary. Yeah. And that's but they're the... doled out. Even in the movie, they're doled out, but not nearly as much as but the But the book. problem with flashbacks is you're breaking a narrative flow. Mm-hmm. And it's very rare that I see a movie that does that very well. Dolores Claiborne actually does that really, really well. Where you, where you're keeping a narrative flow, you're keeping tension high, mm-hmm. and you're not breaking the audience. A lot of the time, I just that's a break for the audience. Film-wise, it's a little bit easier because it's just like a couple seconds is here or there, and you do want to break up visual flow, but narratively, it's still just a big, huge mess. It's like somebody knitting a sweater and coming out with a Gordian knot, and you're just like, what? What what, what were you doing? Are you ready to talk about the ending? Sure. So I wrote, the ending is crap. (laughs) The book ending is somehow better. Really? With the romance? No, not the romance part, okay. for sure. But but when they're in the chapel, mm. and like, okay, it's a grandmother, and the grandmother's like, I've been here with the brother, and like, we'd laid, that, that foundation was already in, and like, this is your family, like, I need to tell you the truth about your family, and this is family, and now she has family, and she has a grandmother, and she has a brother, and it, it's not these random people who supposedly been watching over you but haven't been anywhere all night. Like, it's these people waiting here for you, you know, and now they are, and yada yada, and then he figures out the last part on his own. And, um... Yeah, yeah, I mean, that that was... I thought that was fine. That was... It was it was not great, but it was it was okay. And then we had the ending in the movie where all these random dudes showed up, and she's it's he wasn't her grandfather; he was her protector. Which uh, why why make that change? I'm not really sure what the point of that change was. I don't know why we needed it. And then they have this whole thing where she's like, he's like, "What are you gonna do now that you know?" And she's like, "I don't know. What would you do?" And he's like, "Well, you know, it doesn't matter. What matters is belief, and like faith is good, and the church is good, and so you know, you don't want to disrupt that. You know, you could use your power for good. Basically, do you want to restore the church or break it up?" I was like, "Stop talking! Oh my god! Like this movie should have been done. It felt like the movie had multiple endings, and it just needed to end." And then he's like back at his hotel and then he's shaving and then he's like running around town again and then he's like then he then he just kneels down and there's no i mean we all get what he's doing and then of course they have to show us like they zoom down and there's the sarcophagus down there and you're like okay and then it ends and i just i was like okay and that's basically how it is in the book too he just runs around and he kneels down and he prays at it but somehow the part of the chapel i found better in the in the book than the part of the chapter than the, in the movie so the church really really hated this film with good reason and i was trying to find if there is any quote from i am pay the architect of the pyramids about this cuz mm. that would have been interesting mm. You know, just to get, you know, what do they do with this? This is not the intention or, or whatever. Um, or if he was fine. I, I couldn't find anything. He's an interesting guy on his own. But there's a lot to do about the oddness of this sculpture. And I was just like, it's, you're, you're, you're overdoing things. And this is how I feel when I'm reading Dan Brown. He'll get some weird little factoids here and there. And some of it's true. But he makes it so much bigger than they really are. 
And I tried reading Angels and Demons, and there's this one point when, you know, he's going through the CERN Institute, there's a woman who's doing this flying thing, and she gives him a thumbs up, and he's like, oh, does she really recognize that that's from, you know, gladiator times in Rome, and that she just, you know, decided to execute me, or whatever it is. I'm like, fuck you, Dan Brown, this is so stupid, she gave you a thumbs up, we know how symbols work in modern time, you don't need to go through every single thing, this weird, long, historical diatribe. No, 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 but he does. He has a list of all the symbols that he wants to educate us on, and he just has to find a way to work but them all in. But they're often wrong. <laughs> well, when you can't find a decent, you know, explanation, make one up. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why he's like, no, no, like this, this whole Satan thing. And I, I, I was seriously hearing the church lady screaming Satan <laughs> when I was going through that. Oh no, it's really goddess worship. I'm like, uh, yeah, symbols mean different things. I get that point, but you're. You're assuming a lot from this particular curator that you've never met. Oh, but I know his background. Therefore, I'm going to assume this. I'm going to edify you on that. And I'm just like, fuck you, Dan Brown. Yeah. Also, obviously, the goddess worshiping stuff is the Virgin Mary, not Mary Magdalene. Mm. I mean, duh. So that's just something about Dan Brown. And I know that because I read Mists of Avalon, and that's what they said. (laughs) (laughs) Just as compelling a case, by the way, for what they believe. Okay, my my takeaways, because I'm pretty much done here, is um, we see what we want to see. You should always use your critical thinking skills and like have other sources. And also, religion can be a comfort, but it can also really mess you up. Yeah, so your question about, well, you know, should she or shouldn't she? I'm like, I don't see the point in keeping things secret. She would obviously be a target if that ever came out because, you know, she's a baby Jesus girl. But also, like, because I looked this up, statistically speaking, at this point, bloodlines is so, so, so. Like, like, do you know how many people are related to Genghis Khan? Yeah. I mean, and that was Genghis Khan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he had a lot of... Yeah, but yeah, and yeah, and that's what I was thinking. There's not going to be the one, the person. one, and even there was, it would have to be matrilineal because you have to go through the birth. Like it has to be daughter to daughter, and as soon as you start having boys, you have no guarantee that the like that it's been passed on to anything mm. because you can't guarantee that the, who the father is. You only can guarantee who the mother is. So, women are awesome, by the way. Divine feminine, woo! Yeah. So, okay. So, was it worth your time? No. No. <laughs> like no. Okay, here's the thing. If it was half as long, it would have been f- whatever. It, I wouldn't have been bitter about it. But it's so long. This book is so... And the movie is two and a half hours, you guys. Like, it's too much. It's just too much. To quote so, Ambrose Bierce, the covers of this book are too far apart. <laughs> the covers. That's so nice. Yes. Yes. So, No. And I feel like there's enough Wikipedia, uh, whatever, if you're really interested. And again, it's not real. It's not historical fiction. So, like, if you go into thinking you're going to learn something, you're just, you're not. You're going to learn. It feels like a documentary on the History Channel when they're going for just time filler. And so we're going to get the cheapest thing that we can. It's a mockumentary. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it feels like. It, It feels like the cheapest way that you could. Oh, so what really is the secret of the Mona Lisa? Let's spend an hour trying to figure this out. And this person has a theory and that person has a theory. Spoilers. Nobody knows. (laughs) Nobody, nobody should care. It's a painting. Deal of a painting. It's not even that big of a, I mean, 
I've seen it. Not in person. I have. Maybe maybe I would have had a transcendental experience if I'd seen it I in was person. in the Louvre, so but there, there's mean, a little bit of nostalgia for me, you know, reading that part of the book. Okay, I don't know. Art, mine. But, yeah, the Mona Lisa is not really that great a painting. Um, I know we're, we're kind of going off on a tangent and we should be done. Um, it's not that great a painting. It's got a really interesting history, and that's about the only thing about it. There you go. Also, if you if you look at the the Last Supper, um, there is actually a wine glass on the table. It's just it was buried under like layers of paint or whatever, but it's been found. And all and and that's Peter. Somebody, it, John. It's John. It's John is Magdalene, and he was often portrayed as a feminine version of because he was the youngest, and that's how they kept him separate. Yeah, he's not the only one with long hair. No, definitely not. Or and it's definitely not a bosom. or the shadow of a bosom. I mean, I'll show you a shadow of a bosom, John. <laughs> Whatever, yeah, but you know Leonardo, Di- Di- Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo Da Vinci was gay. Maybe he just needed some help with the bosoms. Okay, we're done. I'm done because we've talked too long about this, right? Sure. Okay. Bye, everyone. <laughs>